Acts chapter 27, verse 33. Acts 27, verse 33. Would you turn there with me if you would? By the way, next Sunday morning, which believe it or not, is post-Thanksgiving and post-Black Friday already. Next Sunday morning, come back. We'll have all these beautiful lights on in the lobby and in the church and here in the sanctuary. They worked so hard, Darla and her team. And uh, so come back next week and as we worship and glorify God and begin to celebrate the birth of Jesus. I look forward to that every year. And it is more beautiful than it has ever looked this year. So thank you, ladies and men for your hard work. And then also, um, uh, there was one other thing. Well, well, I'll think of minute, I'll think about it in just a minute. Um, I hope it wasn't too important. <laughs> My goodness. Okay. Acts, Acts chapter 27, verse 33. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Oh my goodness, this story is amazing. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. Amen? <laughs> For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about this passage and what happened on that fateful day, I pray that you would help our hearts to be filled with thanksgiving for all of your your substance in our life, all of your strength and your hope that you give us in our life, and all of the blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, here's what I was going to tell you a while ago. <laughs> My processor's slow, but it gets there. I know I've shared this with the church before, but I will say it again. When we sang that song, Rock of Ages, my mother told me that 70 years ago, 80 years ago, this is before she passed, when she was a little girl, anytime that you would go through the Carlsbad Caverns, there is a rock formation in there called Rock of Ages. And the United States Park Service personnel would have everybody gather around that rock and they would lead the, the group in singing Rock of Ages, that hymn. Now, our government hasn't done that in a while. They don't do that anymore, uh, but, uh, but they would have them sing Rock of Ages there in Carlsbad Caverns. Mom loved that hymn, and I always loved it because Mom loved it. It's such a powerful hymn, great doctrine in that hymn. That said, Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Amen. That's what we say, Happy Thanksgiving. Even if we're mad when we say it, happy Thanksgiving. We do want it to be a happy day. There's a lot of pressure on it to be a happy day. This week, I'm meeting with my brothers and sisters for our traditional Thanksgiving feast at Cracker Barrel. <laughs> we do it every year. Yum. Then I'm going to go home to watch the Cowboys going to the fourth quarter, two touchdowns ahead, and maybe they'll win this time. <laughs> Maybe not. As you think about that, today's message.
1534 when England broke ties with the Roman Catholic Church and Protestant reformers saw this as an opportunity. In time, these reformers came to be called Puritans, mostly because they wanted to purify the Church of England of traditions they believed not to be biblical. <clears throat> After many years of struggling for change, some Puritans felt that little progress had been made. So they decided it was time to separate from the Church of England. This began the distinction between the Puritans and what were called the Separatists. Though they shared the same theological beliefs and values, the Puritans remained part of the Church of England, while the Separatists chose to separate, and the Pilgrims were part of this Separatist group. Unfortunately, the Church and state were intimately tied, and Separatists were considered treasonous and lived in danger of both prosecution and imprisonment. So due to the hostilities, a small group of Separatists sailed to Holland in 1609. They didn't stay there, but that's where they started. For about a decade, they enjoyed religious freedom and gathered openly for church, but with this freedom came difficulties. First was an economic hardship. As immigrants, they were at the bottom of the economic ladder, and they lived in extreme poverty. Next, this freedom brought the dilution of their biblical values, especially among their young. Some of the young men and women began to assimilate into the Dutch culture, which was much more liberal, and they began abandoning their faith. William Bradford, a passenger on the Mayflower and governor of Plymouth, explained this. He said, Of all the sorrows most heavy to be borne in Holland was that many of the children influenced by these conditions and the great licentiousness of the young people of the country and the many temptations of the city were led by evil example into dangerous courses. <clears throat> With the desire to spread the gospel message, the pilgrims chose to immigrate once again, this time to America, and they were prepared to make tremendous sacrifices for future generations. And the sacrifices proved to be very costly. By the end of their first winter in 1620, half of the passengers who had sailed to America on the Mayflower were dead. Yet they persevered and remained faithful to God. The next year, with the help of some local Indians, they were able to plant crops and had a good harvest. In spite of their losses, in spite of so many of their loved ones and family members having died, they called for a celebration to thank God that they were still there. They were still alive. God blessed them and America became a bastion of freedom, especially the freedom to worship God without fear from either church or governmental persecution. Now, in light of all the challenges we now have in our country, and we have many, we have been blessed so much and for so long that we have grown accustomed to God's blessing. We expect it. Sometimes we think we deserve it. And we're mad at God if we don't get it. And we're often not appreciative when it comes. Perhaps among our greatest challenges before God is that we just take his blessings for granted. Watch this brief clip.
Where is it all going? Please, please, please. Yes. <laughs> Why is this happening? Alright, let me get you uh, uh, No, buddy. No, no, buddy. No, no, buddy. Hey, honey. Are you taking things for granted again? Yeah, I guess so. Alright, well, is there anything you can do about that? Because we really need to do some laundry. Laura, will you... Please give me a more grateful heart. Honey! My car! <laughs> okay. So be grateful. Don't take things for granted. So to help you to remember to be thankful, we handed out these little prayer quilts this morning as a gift. I hope you got one. I call it a prayer clip, a, a, a prayer quilt. By the way, it won't heal your diseases and you won't win the lottery. But every time you put your hand in your pocket, because in the quilt there's a little cross. You can feel that cross in there. And so every time you put your hand in your, clo in your closet, in your pocket, and you feel that quilt, it will remind you, hopefully, to say a word of thanksgiving to God. Pray a little prayer whenever you feel that. Look around wherever you are and see reasons why you and I ought to be thankful. So first, this morning, thanksgiving is about God. Next, Thanksgiving is about finding light in a dark world. Thanksgiving is about finding light in a dark world. For the Apostle Paul, this is literal, and we'll get to that in a minute. But this is a dark world. I've seen it happen. A good person, loved by God, pulled into the darkness of this world and is devoured by it. I understand why the separatists and the pilgrims were so concerned in Holland. It can happen to women sometimes too, but I especially see it in men. So much anger and hate, hostility and darkness. It's easy to get lost in the darkness of this world. Have you struggled with this in your life? It is easy for us in this politically charged climate. It is easy for us to get lost in the darkness of this world. You may be thinking, well, how can I tell? How can I tell if I'm getting lost in this darkness? I'm going to give you four ways. I think it's four. No, it's just three. I'll give you three ways. <laughs> Number one, you lose hope. If you begin to lose yourself in the darkness of this world, the first thing that happens is that you lose hope. And, and I mean that literally. You begin to lose hope in your life. You begin to think and believe that life itself is hopeless. Hope in God's sovereignty, that he's in charge and control of this world. Hope in his love, or that he even cares about you. You begin to lose hope in heaven. You begin to lose hope in the resurrection. 
Always remember, this world has no hope. And it only desires to pull you into its hopelessness. They want you to feel that way too. Number two, you lose perspective. You lose perspective. You lose hope and you lose perspective. You develop the same perspective, and I just wrote this down because this is my struggle as well as yours. You develop the same perspective as the news media. Everything is one tragedy after another, and any good news is just a tiny footnote at the end. Number three, you abandon the biblical truth that you're a victor and embrace the lie that you are a victim. You abandon the biblical truth that you are a victor and you embrace the lie that you are the victim. In a recent article in Scientific American, which is not a religious publication at all, not Christian at all, it's Scientific American, it's entitled Unraveling the Mindset of Victimhood. Even in Scientific American, they have recognized this pervasive mindset in particularly our country that we're all victims, 300 million victims in our nation. And so they have uh, us rate in this article how much you agree with each of the following items about yourself on a scale of one to five. Now, don't tell your neighbors, don't say anything, just keep this internal. Think about this as I'm reading these four things. The, the following items, rate it about yourself on a scale of one to five. One, you, you say, that's not me at all. Five would be, that is so me. All right, are you ready? Number one, it's important to me that people who hurt me acknowledge that an injustice has been done to me. It is important to me that people who hurt me acknowledge that an injustice has been done to me. Number two, rate yourself one to five. Number two, I think that I am much more conscientious and moral in my relations with other people compared to their treatment to me. In other words, I'm a whole lot better to people than they are to, be, to me. That's the victim mentality. Number three, when people who are close to me feel hurt by my actions, let me say that again, when people who are close to me feel hurt by my actions, it's very important for me to clarify that justice is on my side. <laughs> Number four, it is very hard for me to stop thinking about the injustice others have done to me. That is, when you go about your life and about your day, and at time and again, it just comes back in your mind and you rehearse it and rehearse it and you rehearse it in your mind about some wrong that somebody has done to you and you just can't let it go. If you scored high, four or five, on any of these items, according to Scientific American, you may have what psychologists have identified as, quote, a tendency for interpersonal victimhood. Now, why does that matter? Because victims are not grateful for what they have as much as they are bitter for what they don't have. Victims are not grateful. And I understand you've been victimized. I've been victimized. Just because we've been victimized, and some of you have been victimized in horrible ways, but just because you've been victimized does not mean that you have to go about life living as a victim. Because God has made you a victor. So because victims are not grateful for what they have uh, as much as they are bitter for what they don't have. That is, lifestyle victims are not thankful, they are bitter 
Are you thankful or are you bitter? And it denies the fundamental, uh, fundamental truth that in Christ we are called to be victors, not victims. And I can prove it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says it this way. This is love for God to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For Listen to what he says in verse 4. For everyone born of God, everyone born of God, overcomes the world. Even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the whole point. That's why Christ died, so that we have the power through him to overcome the world. And we are victors, not victims. So to my fellow victors out there, don't believe the lies of this dark world that claim that you are a weak, helpless victim. Christ gave you victory on the cross. And it's in that victory that we develop thanksgiving to God. Number three, thanksgiving requires us to depend upon God. Thanksgiving requires us to depend upon God. That brings us to our passage for the day. We've been studying in Acts, and so I went through Acts and did a quick um, scan on my... My trusty computer, it's an electronic concordance, of all the times in Acts, the words, uh, now, the words thanksgiving, thank and thankfulness, or thankful, are in the Bible many, many times. I would say hundreds of times, I didn't count. But in the book of Acts, interestingly, the word thankful, thanksgiving, or thankfulness, is or thanks, is only in the entire book one time. And so that brings us to our passage today, which is interesting because it's the lowest moment in the whole book of Acts, I think. It is astonishing. In in 57 AD, Paul returned from his third missionary journey, and he went to Jerusalem. If you remember, he was warned by the Holy Spirit when he goes back to Jerusalem, there's going to be problems, and there were problems. The Jews that were there decided to kill him, and some guys decided to fast, and they weren't going to eat again until they killed Paul. That was their life mission for his execution. So he was put in prison by the Roman guards in part to protect him. They didn't know what to do with him. They took him to Caesarea Maritima, which means Caesarea by the sea. It's right on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. They put him in prison there. and He ended up being in prison there for two years. But then he appealed to Rome. And because he appealed to Rome after two years, they then put him on a boat, on a ship to go to Rome so that he could make his appeal in person to the emperor, which was what Roman citizens were allowed to do. Accompanying Paul to Rome are Luke, who's writing about the ordeal, and that's why we have such wonderful detail about this voyage. And there was another Christian with them named Aristarchus. Aristarchus. Acts chapter 27 gives a detailed account of Paul's terrifying voyage, which eventually leads to a shipwreck but also to praise and victory to God. They stopped in Crete on the way, and Paul told them while they were in Crete that if they set out again, they were going to sink. They they weren't going to make it. The centurion who was in charge of him just ignored Paul, which was a big mistake, of course, and they set out anyway on their way to Rome. Well, there was a terrible storm that developed, and it lasted for weeks. 
I mean, it's a bad storm, and they can't sell or do anything. They're just trying to survive, and in a panic, eventually, they threw all the cargo, cargo overboard. And then after all the cargo was thrown overboard, they threw anything, all of the tackle and anything that they had, they threw it overboard as well. They were so afraid for their lives that they ended up uh, throwing away everything. That brings us to Acts chapter 27, verse 21, if you'll look there with me. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete. Then you would have uh, spared yourselves this damage and loss. In other words, what is he saying? I told you so. Every man's favorite words. Verse 22. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, listen to this. <clears throat> Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lies of all who sell with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Now, I don't know where you are in your life today, but I trust that it's not quite as bad as being out to sea on a first century ship, not exactly built by Royal Caribbean, by the way, made of wood in the middle of a hurricane force storm for weeks at a time. So what does any of this have to do with Thanksgiving? Well, look with me again, beginning in verse 33, our passage that we read at the beginning. In the context of that, it says, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and did what? Gave thanks to God in front of all, them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. There are two things I want you to notice. Number one, Paul gave thanks. That sounds almost bizarre because they're not in the palace in Rome, safe and sound, warm and dry, and with their bellies full from some Roman banquet. On the contrary, They've been fighting for weeks. They're cold and wet. They have no provisions. They threw them all overboard. They just have a little bit of bread, a little bit of food left, and they haven't eaten it in weeks. It's almost like a last meal kind of thing. They've been so distraught and so worried they couldn't even eat. Have you ever been that way in your life? You've, have, have you ever been that way? Have you ever been to the place where you can't even eat? You're so worried about something. That's how they were. Paul, in the midst of that darkness and that storm and that dreariness, he lifted up the bread that he had in front of everybody, all these faithless Romans, and he gave thanks to God. By the way, uh, there's something that interesting that happened 
in a previous verse that I didn't read, uh, there was a lifeboat on board. Now, they have no life preservers, and they weren't swimmers. They would all drown immediately. But they did have one lifeboat on board, one, to carry some of them. And so that lifeboat, some of the guys, some of the sailors lowered that down into the sea. And Paul turned to the centurion, the one that didn't listen to him last time. He turned to the centurion and he said, no, they can't get on that boat. If they get on the boat, they're going to perish. Their only chance of surviving if they stay on the boat with me, on the ship with me. And so the centurion, who now believes him, gives an order for the ropes to be cut, and they cut ties with the one boat that they had to save them. In other words, the centurion has now come to realize that their only hope is in Paul's God. So when Paul prays this prayer of thanksgiving, as bad as things are, as dire as the situation is, as dark as the day is, as much as the odds are against him, he takes the bread and he says, thank you, God, for what I have, for the bread. That's all he's got, by the way. That's all they have left. There's nothing except the storm. Thank you, God, for the bread. And when Paul prayed that, and he began to eat, he says, it says they began to eat as well, and they were, what's the word? They were encouraged. Did you see that? Then he broke bread and began to eat. They were, in verse 36, they were all, they were all, not some of them, they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Now, why were they encouraged? What's the only reason they could be encouraged? They have hope. They have hope. For the first time in 14 days of this horrible storm, they finally have hope. And in the middle of their hope, they're now able to eat a meal. And by the way, of course, what Paul said is right. What God promised is right. Not one of them perished. Every single one of them survived. God would be glorified and people would come to conversion in Christ on that day because they realized there was hope in this life. Think about it. What a terrible, dark scene. But in the midst of that awful moment, Paul gave thanks for some stale bread in the midst of a terrible storm. And God delivered them all. Now for you and me, how can God deliver us if there are no storms in our life? How can God deliver us if there are no storms in our life? I know it sounds odd, but when you're struggling, thank God for the storm. Because it's his opportunity to show you he's in control and that he loves you. Listen to me. Some of you will need to hear this in the future. Some of you will need to hear this today. God will take care of you. God will deliver you as he delivered them. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that you're going to get all the solutions, all of your problems delivered all at once. It doesn't mean that you're going to get things exactly the way you wanted them. But God will deliver you. So what is your part in the midst of the storm? Well, you do what? Paul did. You simply give thanks. We must give thanks. Remember, Thanksgiving is about God and his goodness. It's about finding light and good in this dark world. 
And true thanksgiving requires us to depend upon God. It is a must. The storm is coming, but God is there. Will you give him thanks today? Pray with me. Father God, we come to you today and we want to say thank you. You are so gracious to us. As we give thanks, we have so much to be thankful for. And I know this has been a difficult year for many people. There's been bad news from the doctor. There's been heartache. There's been broken relationships, maybe divorce, maybe other things. But you're still God. You're still on the throne. And you still love us. Father, we have hope in Jesus Christ, no matter what. Thank you. Chances are there's not a single man, woman, or child here today that's going to go home on a completely empty stomach. Certainly not this morning. There's not a man, woman, or child here today that doesn't have somewhere to go, somewhere to sleep tonight, clothes to wear. It may not be the biggest house or the nicest clothes or the best food, but it's a feast for so many in the world. Thank you. Not only have you sustained us physically because we're here, we're alive, but you have blessed us with friends, with a church. You have sustained our nation for yet another year. We've not been attacked. There's no nuclear bombs going off, no sirens. You've taken care of us. Thank you. More than all of that, you have given us a reason to come into your house today. You have given us the hope we have in Christ. And that's not hypothetical hope. It's not a platitude. It's something that is real and that is powerful. Thank you for hope in him. Hope in salvation. Hope in the forgiveness of our sins. Hope that through that forgiveness that you're listening to our prayer right now. And if we're crying out in thanksgiving and crying out even in anguish that you hear us and your spirit intercedes for us. And that one day when this life is over, hope we have in our salvation, in eternity, perfection. And all these problems that we have, all these taxes and burdens and hurts and disappointments it will all be gone real hope thank you as you're praying no one's looking around can I challenge you this morning to thank God for this year for all that he's done in your life for bringing you through difficult times for giving you all the provisions that you have. Would you be willing to thank him today? Some of you might want to come here in just a minute and get on these, on these steps and just kneel and pray and say, God, thank you for my life. All the good times and all the challenging times. Some of you are in the middle of a storm. I want to challenge you, whether on your knees up here or right where you are, say, God, I'm in a storm here, but I put my hope in you. Deliver me. Deliver me in the name of Christ. And I believe that God is faithful and will deliver you.
could be you want to pray for somebody else. Maybe God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church and you want to come down this morning. Or maybe you want to give your life to Christ. Just come down and say, Pastor, I'd like to give my life to Christ today. If God is leading right now, this opportunity is for you. Would you stand? Everyone stand. All heads are bowed. All eyes are closed. And as the music plays, this invitation is for you. Right now, you come.